Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Color of Change's award-winning podcast, Tell Black Stories. I'm Erica May, Deputy Senior Director of Criminal Justice and Democracy Campaigns at Color of Change, and we're back with an episode of Tell Black Stories Live with writer, professor, and political commentator, Melissa Harris-Perry. Today, we'll be talking about the role of the filibuster and the important legislation we need to advance racial justice. Melissa, it's so great to see you again. Uh, let's start off. How are you? It's good to see you too. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's so much going on in the world. I just wanted to start off by asking how you and your family are doing right now. Oh, honestly, um, we're doing uh, quite well. Um, I, uh, my mother and father have both had both of their um, vaccine shots and my husband's mother and father and auntie have all had both of their vaccine shots. And um, I jokingly said, I can't believe we made it through the pandemic with all of our olds. Um, but that's, uh, and then of course my mom immediately got sick with something completely different right after I said that, um, but she's well now. So I, honestly, we lost lots of other people in our lives, but to feel like we're coming out on the other side with all of, of our seniors is, um, is a gift. And I, I don't take it lightly. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, I'm glad y'all are doing well. Um, all right, well, let's jump in. So as you know, Senate Republicans are standing in the way of important legislation to advance racial justice and Senate, Senate Democrats have the power to change that but they seem a little reluctant. Um, couldn't President Joe Biden just sign executive orders for legislation like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act? So first of all, are you saying that there are Democrats standing in the way of racial justice? I'm shocked. <laughs> so, you know, Eric, I think part of what um, this transition moment to the Biden administration offers us is both the challenge and the opportunity of remembering that the the concern about racial justice and the inability to move forward racial justice has been a bipartisan problem. And I think during the Trump presidency, it was easy to imagine um, or even to feel as though um, the question of racism and white supremacy all existed on one side of the aisle. Um, but I think we are already, you know, even uh, less than 100 days in remembering uh, that uh, Black folk got to look out for Black folk uh, in, in some very real um, ways. So let me just say this. Yes, the president, President Biden, could, in fact, sign executive orders. Um, but we, we need to remember that executive orders are limited in some really important ways. So, for example, the president could order some of the provisions of the George, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. There is a series of federal oversights within that act. Um, certainly the president could direct his own bureaucracy to behave in those ways. But the president actually can't, by executive order, simply um, mandate that states and localities behave in particular ways. And of course, as we know, states and localities are exactly where the sort of policing problem lies. Um, and so we know that he could find some aspects of it. There are other parts of it that simply he could not reach as an executive alone. It's also true that, you know, Congress still holds the purse strings. And one of the potential powers of the George Floyd Act is the possibility of actually creating some economic incentives and some economic punishments for the states. And the president wouldn't be able to do that alone. And the last thing I'll say is presidents don't last forever. I mean, thank goodness, having just gone through um, some difficult years. 
but you want to make law because law is much less likely to be overturned by the Supreme Court. It's much more likely to be durable um, through more than one administration, whereas executive orders can be overturned on the first day. That's right. And, and to be clear, he has signed some very important executive orders, especially pertaining to things like voting rights into law. But however, it sounds like what you're saying is that this is about creating a government that respects majority rule and making it easier for Congress to pass laws that the American people, especially Black people, need. Well, and you know, it's funny because that idea of like respecting majority rule is kind of exactly why we're here talking, because you think that the Senate, right, here's a, a, a branch of our Congress, our bicameral legislature, you would think, oh, sure, that, you know, they vote by majority rule and the majority wins. But actually, the entire way the U.S. Senate is set up means that it simply never is um, behaving in a way that is representing majority interest, or at least it can certainly operate um, by sort of what we would think of as the rules of the game, but still only represent the minority. So let me explain just real quick. Remember, every state gets two senators, right? We know that, that's why there's a hundred. So every state gets two senators. That means states with large populations like New York, Illinois, where Chicago is, Pennsylvania, where Philadelphia is, California, where Los Angeles and San Francisco and Oakland all are. They also get two senators, as does Wyoming and North Dakota and South Dakota. So we end up in a situation where the majority of Americans are underrepresented in the U.S. Senate. And then because of the abuse of the filibuster, the Senate is operating not just by majority, but by supermajority. And the only way you get to those supermajorities is to have a whole bunch of states that are teeny tiny populations, overwhelmingly white, and have been long-term strongholds for the Republican Party. So it's actually not even majority rule in the way we would think of it normally in a democracy. Wow. Um... So, um, and I can't believe <laughs> that's a, that's a, you, just, you just said a whole lot right there. Uh, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but midterm elections are looming near, uh, looming near. Break, run that back. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but midterm elections are looming near. Um, if Republicans win back at least one of the chambers, this puts Democrats at a disadvantage where the filibuster could be helpful for them. Um, wouldn't eliminating it be a short-sighted solution? not a fan. For, well, first, I'm not a fan of the fact that we have to talk about midterms already. That seems really exhausting. I feel like I haven't even had a nap from the 2020 uh, election yet. Um, but I'm not a, I am personally not in favor of a complete elimination of the filibuster. Um, now, I, I recognize that not supporting a complete end to the filibuster basically puts me at odds with progressives, it also probably puts me at odds with most of American racial history because we know the filibuster has primarily been used um, first by Democrats and then by Republicans um, when, when Democrats were the more conservative party and now by Republicans, now they are the more conservative party. In both cases, though, it's mostly been used against the interests of Black communities. So you might think any tool that's always been used against Black folks, let's just get rid of it. But the reality is, at, in such a divided nation, 
we might at times want to be able to protect the rights of the numerical minority. And again, as black folks, we ought to always be at least a little suspicious of thinking that majority rule is exclusively good. We want mostly majority rule, but also protection of minority interests. That's kind of Federalist Papers 101. Right now, what I'd say is what we need is a very different way of using the filibuster. We need to reform the filibuster. It needs to be rare and it needs to be real, which means if you want a filibuster, you need to go ahead and get your, uh, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington on. You need to have to stand up, make your argument, talk long and actually filibuster. Right now, the way it's being used, it's just a procedure, it's a rule, and it's basically being used for every single piece of legislation. So here you've got Mitch McConnell, who's now the minority leader or in a, this balanced Senate, but he's the Republican leader in the U.S. Senate. He was elected by only 1.2 million people. All of them live in Kentucky, but he's the most powerful person in the country because he can basically stand in the way of all legislative action. That's wild, right? That is a majority rule by any imagination. 1.2 million Kentuckians determine what even gets a vote. Wow. Um, and to add to the fact that Democrats may not, not even control both chambers forever. And so, um, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll have to run that back. I apologize. I'm sorry, I lost my, I was listening to you so intently. I was like, um, Right, and then add to that the fact that it's true that the Democrats may not control both chambers forever. Um, and we have to remember that the filibuster as it's currently being used has been a major obstacle to important and timely legislation to slow the effects of climate change, to expand access to healthcare and to reduce gun violence. Um, and Melissa, just to be clear, we also are in favor of filibuster reform. Um, we are currently advocating to lower the cloture vote um, from 60 to 50 votes uh, for folks mm -hmm. that don't know Cloture is the vote that's used to close the, as the vote to end debate. Um, so we're, at, we're, we're advocating to lower that and to restore the talking filibuster as well. Um, Look, I, I, there's one other solution we can have here. Statehood for Washington, D.C. and statehood for Puerto Rico. In the case of statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, you're basically guaranteed four Democratic senators of color. So D.C. would most certainly elect um, African-American or um, uh, Black folks who are protect, uh, potentially from other immigrant groups. Um, and certainly we know also Puerto Rico is very likely um, to elect people of color. And so if, if folks wanna just play by these rules, then we're gonna have to get some more senators in the mix. And one of the ways to do that is statehood for DC and Puerto Rico. But how do you do that with the filibuster in place? Oh, you know, social movement. <laughs> So I think uh, this is part of the reminder um, that we all have that there are rules of the game and then there's the outside push. And this is what Color of Change is so brilliant um, at being able to do and to harness. When I think about the wins that Color of Change has been able to have, even during years um, of largely unfriendly administrations, unfriendly legislative majorities, part of it is that power should never reside in exclusively one place. So I think part of it is we need to get our attention around the idea of the Senate, Senate rules, which is not necessarily the sexiest thing to talk about, but is really critical to how our politics work. And then you build social movement. 
You also start thinking about what are the other possible allies? Who else might want statehood? Um, who, can be, who can become powerful allies um, in this fight? And Melissa, don't, um, and just thinking about, you know, when, when the, the makeup of Congress, um, don't Democrats benefit as much from the filibuster as Republican lawmakers do? You know, they have certainly over the long U.S. history, Democrats and Republicans have made use of it. Um, but I'll tell you again, who doesn't benefit from it is Black folk. Well, for the most part, we have not been able to benefit from it. But let me just say this. It's because, in part, electing Black senators is really hard. Um, so we have had fewer Black senators than any other position except for the presidency, vice presidency, and gubernatorial um, levels. So certainly we are able to elect African-Americans to the U.S. House of Representatives, um, to the state legislatures. But in the U.S. Senate, um, we've, of course, only had, for example, two Black women ever serve. One of them, of course, is now our vice president. Um, and as excited as we all are for Vice President Harris, her departure meant that there are now zero Black women in the U.S. Senate. And she came out of California where a Democratic governor could have appointed a Black woman. Uh, and although I'm, I'm sure you know, the, the, the current senator is actually doing a really great job so far, I do think representation matters in multiple ways and that it was a meaningful blow to not have an African-American woman senator um, among the 100. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, uh, and just to be clear, so and just to, to, to just bring your point home, research has shown that Senate Republicans have used the filibuster twice as much to block legislation from Democrats than the other way around. And so it's clear that Republicans are using this tool to frustrate and undermine the will of the majority rather than to serve their co constituent or to compromise. Yeah, they're not big on compromise, although one might say their constituents have actually wanted them to obstruct. But I'll also remind that one of the major ways that they have used Senate rules for obstruction has been um, with uh, judicial votes, right? So, so votes on presidential appointments, particularly during um, Obama's second term, they really stalled the ability of President Obama to appoint um, people to the federal judiciary. And that is perhaps the most long lasting effect because those um, positions are lifetime appointments. And then Trump turned around and Filled them with people who yes. who are who are conservatives and who are obviously not going to uh, yeah do things uh, and who are very are. young <laughs> they're going to be around a long time right um, let me ask you this would reinstating the Voting Rights Act and passing the For the People Act really do much to protect voting rights. Yes, 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 yes. So we definitely want a full strength Voting Rights Act. So let me say the Voting Rights Act is still in effect. I know we talk about it a lot in Shelby v. Holder as though, um, as though the Supreme Court threw the Voting Rights Act out. And that's not quite hap what happened. I don't want to get into too much of the technical details, but the way to think of it is this. Most of the protections of the Voting Rights Act uh, exist under Section 2. And that's sort of all the anti-discrimination aspects. But the question is, how do you get the protection of Section 2? Think of Section 2 as that discursive umbrella, right? Mm -hmm. Put up the umbrella. So how do you get that umbrella to go up, to protect? Well, there was a section five. And section five was like, you had an automatic button on your umbrella, right? You just push it and boop, 
up, up, you know, popped the umbrella and protected you. And what that meant was that all of these states that had a long history of bad action relative to voting rights, before they could make any changes at all, they had to send those proposed changes up to the federal government and they had to have those changes reviewed and approved by the Department of Justice. So if they were about to make a change that was likely to rain on black folk, then the Department of Justice pushed the button and boop, up came section two. When the Supreme Court invalidated the formula for that kind of automatic button, it created a cost. So you can still get the protections of section two, but in order to get them, you have to sue. So what will happen is a state will pass a, um, a problematic law and then activists, advocates, ordinary citizens have to get together, spend their time, their energy and their money to take these folks to court. They have to collect the data themselves. That's a long process. It's one that you might not win. And it's one, again, to go back to our umbrella idea, it's like every time it rains, you got to go to the store, find the umbrella, right? You got to put it up manually. Heck, the way section two works without section five is like you have to kind of build the umbrella yourself. So it would make a huge difference to get section five back and robust so that automatic button is working for us again. Absolutely. And um, due to the removal of Section 5, Republican state lawmakers or the, the, the absence of Section 5 has allowed Republican state lawmakers to move at lightning speed to enact voter suppression laws um, across the country that have passed but jeopardized the current uh, Democratic majorities in both chambers of Congress for years to come. Uh, these years are tar- I'm so sorry, y'all. I'm like getting so nervous. I'm going to just start all over if that's okay. I apologize, Brian, for the editing. (laughs) But um, absolutely. And with Section 5 not in place, Republican state lawmakers are moving at lightning speed to enact voter suppression laws that have passed would jeopardize the current Democratic majorities in both chambers of Congress for years to come. These laws are targeting the millions of Black voters that solidified election victories at all levels of government, including the presidential and Senate races. Federal legislation would protect all Americans, but especially Black voters from these blatant efforts to suppress our votes. Melissa, how would the reinstatement of the Voting Rights Act protect the Georgians who witnessed a slew of anti-voting laws past their state Senate and over the last few weeks? Listen, there's a part of me that's like, I ain't worried about Georgia because (laughs) good luck trying to suppress a Georgia voter right now. I mean, I think we want to take a couple lessons from this. One, clearly, and you know, it's hard for me as as a New Orleanian, it's it's hard for me to give Atlanta credit really for anything. So the fact that I am like expressing my deep belief in Georgia voters is well earned on the part of those voters and those organizers and activists. But I think one of the great lessons that we should be seeing here is notice how the success of voter turnout, right? Actually getting new voters in, getting young people out, getting um, elders out, even in a pandemic, instead of that being rewarded, it is actually being punished by those Georgia state legislatures. So there just can't be any question that their goal is to keep people from voting. And that should never be what we're up to in a democracy. It's fine to debate whether it's the Democratic Party or the Republican Party who has your best interest at heart. It's perfectly fine to debate any given candidate within those parties. It's perfectly great to argue about policy. 
It's not okay to keep people from being able to vote when you know darn well that they are uh, there, that it is equitable and reasonable for them to vote, that it is legal for them to vote. It's just not going to go your way. Convince me if you want me. You can't just suppress me. So yes, the Voting Rights Act, um, the For the People Act, um, but as we all have come to think of it as John Lewis's legacy, it absolutely must pass. We must protect Georgia voters. We must protect voters throughout the country. And I'll also just finally say this, notice that on both sides of the aisle in 2020, we had record voter turnout. And that is in part because we finally were sort of pushed by the COVID-19 pandemic to do things we should have done a long time ago, mail voting in all 50 states, having much um, greater access to early voting, all of those, um, ways that we dropped barriers that so many of us have been screaming about for so many years, it, it turned into an opportunity for Democrats and Republicans to cast their ballots. So everybody should be thinking about how we make these changes permanent, not how we roll back and suppress again. Right. And this is obvious, but as a Georgia girl, I just have to say um, that what we're seeing in Georgia is obviously a blatant effort to suppress Black votes um, after an election year where Black voters drove record-breaking turnout through absentee and early voting. As you mentioned, uh, Melissa, Georgia lawmakers moved significantly to restrict voters' options. Um, this is why federal legislation is so critically important for protecting and restoring voting rights to combat these, these attacks from state legislatures, not just in Georgia, but across the country. Um, and so HR1, which is awaiting Senate approval, with, would establish national automatic voter registration and expand access to absentee voting. And HR4, which is awaiting a House vote, would go even further to protect back voters by effectively restoring the Voting Rights Act and cracking down on discrimination. Melissa, don't Republicans have a right, like any minority ruling party, to stand against measures they don't like, such as COVID relief? Of course. I mean, I, I'm sorry. It's just so funny because, like, I guess my thought is, who doesn't want COVID relief? Who's like, you know what I'm against? <laughs> I'm against people who are my constituents while they're living in a pandemic getting some help. Yes, that is, that is what I'm against. Sure. I absolutely think legislators should feel free to stand against relief for their constituents. I also think their constituents should feel very free to vote them out of office. And if and let me just push it a little bit further. I always, uh, what I say to my students is voting is the brushing your teeth of democracy. I mean, I want you to do it. It's going to make all of our lives much better, but I'm probably not going to give you a prize for brushing your teeth. What I want you to really think about, about how to get the rascals and the scoundrels out, is I want you to think about running for office. Now, I know not everybody's in position to run for the U.S. Senate. I got it. No one, not everyone even wants that kind of job. But have you thought about your local county commissioner? Have you thought about your school board? Have you thought about any potential space? Because I'll tell you, the other side has been thinking about them. They've been um, taking those very small positions and then building up. So I want everyone as we're going into the 2020s, as we're here in 2021, as the sun is rising on the other side of the pandemic, to start thinking about not only getting out of your house and getting back to work and getting back to school, but think about where you might be able to serve in your local community by running for elected office. Yes, absolutely. I second that. Um, 
And just to be clear about the filibuster, filibuster doesn't allow for compromise. It only destructs, uh, it only allows for the destruction of important bills. There are so many more other more meaningful ways for Republicans to come to the table and work on bills, right? Such as offering germane amendments, deliberating over bill language with the talking filibuster as we talked, as we discussed earlier, or um, bringing measures to the floor for, uh, for a vote of, of yes or no. Um, Melissa, any final thoughts? Um, only that I, I think we should um, we should take this opportunity to feel empowered. I, I know it can feel like, wait, didn't we just have an election? Didn't we just get some big wins? And now we're in a moment of like, we can't get the legislation through. But I just want everyone to take a deep breath. Democracy is messy. It's okay for democracy to be messy. We got to stay focused, not only on the players who are playing the game, but the rules of the game. And again, they're not as sexy. It's not as exciting. Um, but it is so critical. Yes, we have to change who our presidents and who our senators and who our representatives are, but we also have to make sure that we have fair rules by which all folks from both parties are in fact governing. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. Um, thank you for joining me uh, in this episode of Tell Black Stories. If you want to learn more about Color of Change's campaigns, please visit us at colorofchange.org and listen to this episode and more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream. I'm Erica May. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Erica. And I'll be interested to know what office you're going to run for. 